Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the New News Podcast. I'm Josh. We're down Sandy and Andrew today, but uh, excited to be joined by Jeff Jones of the Bellevue News Democrat, who does awesome Cardinals coverage over there. And I'm sure many of you have seen his work over there or on Twitter. And so, Jeff, thanks for being here today. Uh, how's the offseason been for you so far? The offseason has been good. Uh, the thing that I have learned this offseason that's important for folks to know and understand, I'm, I'm 36 years old. I never knew this until now. When you buy a house and they tell you that it is move-in ready, what that means is it's move-in ready if you want to live with somebody else's like paint and fixture choices mm -hmm. and all that. Uh, and if you don't want to do that, you picked up like a thousand hours of labor uh, on top of that before. You know, so that is that's been my entire offseason, which is not really a complaint, but it has it has been sort of swallowing my existence, and that's why it was unfortunately like ten minutes late getting to you all today. But sorry, but no, I'm glad to be here. No worries at all. My wife and I bought a house this this summer, and same thing. It's like, oh, we yeah. signed up for a lot of extra work. We didn't realize. So. Yeah, and, and oh. you know, and if I was if I was even remotely handy, that would be a lot easier. No, no shot. So that's been <laughs> that's been fun. Uh, I feel you on that. Well, uh, fans are obviously chomping at the bit. Off season takes a while to play out, so it's natural things haven't really happened so far. But the GM meetings did happen this past week, which is kind of historically sets the framework for a lot of deals that will end up happening throughout the offseason. So, Jeff, what are some of your general thoughts coming out of the general manager's meetings and what this means to the Cardinals moving into the next few weeks and months? Yeah, I think the first thing that that sort of jumps out, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm not the first person to notice, if I know Ben Fredrickson wrote about it this week, uh, is that three all of a sudden has become two, right? Like the conversation mm -hmm. with the Cardinals starting from the middle of July through the end of the season has been they need three starting pitchers, and that's been from every mouth that controls anything over there. Uh, and that's that's been consistently the case. And now, you know, now the message out of the GM meetings is two and then we'll see, or it's two and a half, or, you know, which – Two and a half or two and then we'll see probably means the same thing as three, but it is a question of it if three can get adjusted down to two and a half, can two and a half get adjusted down to one and a half? And if mm. that happens, that would seem to be a really serious problem. So, you know, it, this is going to be an interesting offseason. Obviously, you know, you come off the worst season in whatever, 30 years, 60 years, however you want to measure it. Uh, it's bound to be an interesting offseason, but it's really going to test how prepared they are to operate in the free market. And when I talk to folks, the assumption is that they're not going to do it. And the reason is that they mm -hmm. haven't historically, right? They have, they've just, they have not played in that corner of, of the free agent pool. And so until they do it, until they demonstrate an ability and a desire to do it, I, you, you assume that they won't, you know, the, the saying goes, right? Like the, the best, the best uh, predictor of future behavior is past behavior and past mm -hmm. behavior is they stay inside their own value lane and they don't stretch. So until they do something else, that's, that's the assumption for how that's going to play out. Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, it's probably hard to predict exactly what's behind walking back some of that language a little bit, if we want to say it that way. Is there anything you think, like, is it they've started to have conversations with agents and other general managers and like, okay, this is going to be harder than we thought it was going to be, or were they kind of just giving lip service before, but now they're kind of changing the tune as it goes on? Because it feels like reports even back in August were saying, okay, they understand the price of pitching. They understand they need to operate differently. Even if they were publicly saying that, that's like what a Derek Gold would have reported. And now yeah. it's seems like it's changing publicly and I don't really get what the point of that is. So I, I think that the one thing that jumps out to me is 
the 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 conditions that might have changed since they started talking is we sort of saw Aaron Nola pitch well for the Phillies mm. through the end of the LCS, and we saw Sonny Gray. His last start was not great, but we saw Sonny Gray pitch for Minnesota in the postseason and and look good. And and so I think that maybe it it is possible that the market on a couple of pitchers that they were dialed in on has been bigger uh, or more pricey than they were expecting. Right, like. You know, one thing about Nola that has been really interesting to me is when you sort of look back for comps for what his deal might look like, there really aren't that many. You know, a 30-year-old righty starter who maybe has more upside than he's shown, but is a little bit of a gamble. Really, the the closest comp has been Zach Wheeler, and that's a couple of years old at this point, right? And so I don't know yeah. that there is really – there isn't a really clear thing you can point to in the market and say, oh, okay, well, his deal is going to be like this guy. So if the market for Nola is developing in such a way that they all of a sudden are blanching at it, that might change some of the way they look at the offseason and could shift them into more of the trade market and less of the free agent market for at least whatever their headline acquisition is going to be. Interesting. Well, we'll get more into some of those specific free agent targets or potentially the trade market later in the conversation. But you put out a piece today called Dispelling Myths About the Cardinals Payroll Budget. And what it should be. And I read it this morning and I thought it was really interesting. And it's, and actually we we're prepared to come on and ask you a little bit about that payroll debate. And so now I actually, I'd rather you just riff a little bit about what's like, why doesn't it matter for us to be do, having this debate? So I, I think that when we look at like what payroll means in the context of major league baseball, and I, I read about this, you know, in, in, in terms of the Padres, right? Because there was a story a couple of weeks ago that the Padres took out a $50 million line of credit to meet some expenses, including payroll at the end of the season. And that sent up red flags around the league. But, I, you know, when I talk to people in the game, the thing that sticks out is not that the Padres did that. It's that that became public because that's not, mm. that's not a totally uncommon thing to have happen, right? Like MLB has rules set up for debt service and MLB has, you know, you can take out X amount if you have this much, this much outstanding, because what the league does not want, which they'll never let happen again, is a situation they had with the Expos and Jeffrey Loria at the end of the 90s, where the league had to mm -hmm. take over the team because Loria either couldn't or wouldn't meet expenses, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and MLB owned the Expos as they became the Nationals and, and moved back to D.C. That's never going to happen again, because the, you you could not buy a team now if you were undercapitalized to the extent that that was possible. Like it, just, it just would never happen. Uh, so there's not really a risk that teams can't afford these salaries, right? Like even Bob Nutting's Pittsburgh Pirates could spend 210 million on payroll next season and not really feel it. They, they would maybe they would feel like the short-term cash flow affected it, but that's not like that is so small in the context of owning a team. You know, the thing that I point out to people that is really important to remember is that. The ownership group that Bill DeWitt is the chairman of bought the team, bought the ballpark, and bought parking garages around it for $150 million in late 95. A year later, they sold the parking garages back to a private company for $75 million. So they are net $75 million. It's a, it's a 15, it, it's 15 people, 15 entities, whatever you want to say in the ownership group, a net 75 million into it. If they were to sell the team tomorrow, I don't, I don't know what they would get for it, but it would, I would be comfortable saying it would be north of 2 billion, right? Mm -hmm. So whatever cash they have put in over the last 25 years 
they are going to they are going to more than reap in in return. Even even if every nickel they've spent on the team for the last twenty five years has just been a waste, which it hasn't been. Uh, you know, they believe they've, they've made they've made profit, they've made revenue. Even if they hadn't, whatever they 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 would get back more than enough in terms you know in, in terms of what they could sell if they sell it. And so, yeah, team values only matter when the team gets sold, but they do matter in in the sort of day to day running of a team. All of that is to say. The payroll bet, the payroll budget only matters if they are committed to sticking to it, no matter what. Now, I don't think that they're going to go over like the revenue tax line, for instance, right? But they are 85, 90 million dollars below the revenue tax line mm. annually. Like they're not close. That's not. That's really not a concern. It would be, it would be hard for them to get. Like they, they would have to. I don't even know. Sign Otani and trade for Juan Soto, and then find somewhere <laughs> else to drop thirty million annually this winter yeah. to get there. Right? That's not like that's not in the neighborhood of a concern. And so, whether you know whether they st- whether they want to start the season next year at one seventy five, one eighty five, two hundred, it only matters if they're wedded to it. And I don't get the mm-hmm. impression that they are. I think okay. rather what we're seeing is this is what they would like the number to be, and if there are targets that exceed that then they will go get those targets. And so mm. the question, and this is what I wrote about, was like what teams care about is not necessarily what players cost. It is what the players cost relative to what they think they should cost, right? Because mm. the guys who are in, in, in charge, the guys and girls who are in charge of making these decisions for teams, their models need to be right. Because if they're not, then the people who are signing the checks are going to wonder why they're putting out for these large front offices who are doing all this complicated work, right? So they need to be correct and they need their valuations to be pretty close to right. And so when you see the market blow up, the reason that takes a team like the Cardinals, you know, if if someone comes along and is knocking on Aaron Nola's door at like seven and two ten. The reason that that blows the Cardinals out of the water is not that they couldn't afford that deal because, of course, they could. But it's that, you know, if their internal valuation says that Aaron Nola is a 5-145 guy, for, just, it, it, just roughly yeah. as an example, if, if, that's what, if that's what they think he is internally, but the market goes way past that, it's hard for me to believe that they're going to go there. They haven't hmm. historically, right? And that's And so when we talk about what does it mean for the Cardinals to adjust to the market? It means being willing to sort of swallow that pill. Uh, and we'll see if they do that when the rubber hits the road. That's really interesting, Jeff. Thanks for going in depth on that. Like, so like you brought up an Aaron Nola or I would put maybe Blake Snell in his category. What are like, your just feeling the waters a little bit expectations of what you think their markets are going to look like. And do you expect at the end of the day, like, if people are projecting five one forty five for Nola, do you expect there's going to be a team for each of these guys that comes out and overspends, and the Cardinals are going to have to match that kind of thing? Or do you think the market? Because there are like I, I know there isn't like a people will say there isn't like a true ace out there, but there are plenty of guys out there to sign this offseason. Sure. So do you think that maybe mellows out the market a little bit to the extent where there's going to be a guy that if the Cardinals really want him? And it's real. It'll be realistic within potentially their evaluations, or do you think yeah. they're really gonna really gonna have to swallow the pill and, and potentially overspend to get a guy? I, we'll we'll sort of see how the market shapes up. You know, when when, yeah. I, when we kind of look at what what the free agent starters, I think I think it's pretty clear that for most folks, there are 
three names at the top, maybe four, depending on how you feel about Jordan Montgomery, right? So we're talking about Mm. Nola, we're talking about Snell, and we're talking about Yoshinobu Yamamoto are the three names at the very top of the market. Then that tier right below them, maybe maybe between them and the B tier is where Jordan Montgomery lives. And then you're talking about like Sonny Gray. Uh, you're talking about Imaga, Imanaga. I think it's Imanaga. I, yeah. I'm not, I, Yamamoto, I practice Imanaga. I'm a little shabby. So, <laughs> uh, but no, you're talking about him. You're talking about Sonny Gray. You're talking about guys in that neighborhood. And then that's before you get, you know, and maybe maybe Michael Waka is at the bottom of that tier, maybe. Uh, and hmm. then you are started getting into like the one-year flyer guys, which again, and also there, yeah. there are sub-tiers below that, right? Like, for instance... Yeah. A one year for Kyle Gibson is a different deal than a one year, for example, for Jack Flaherty, because Kyle Gibson, you know what you're getting, uh, whereas Jack Flaherty is that's a whole other proposition in terms of injury risk and et cetera, right? So there, you know, there's the top of the market, there's the B tier guys, there's the one year eaters, and then there are the gamble tier. And so, you know, if the Cardinals were to go into the market and come away with a B tier guy, an eater guy, and a gamble, that's two and a half starters, but does it really make them better than they were last year? That's that's tough to say, right? Because you would like improving on Wainwright's spot should be easy between Wainwright and Jake Woodford. That was that was a hole. So that should be easy enough to replace. Like Kyle Gibson, for example, would be a massive improvement on that spot in the rotation. But then you're talking about improving on Montgomery's slot in the rotation. And that is tough, right? Like that really ultimately it boils down to they need to find a starter. They need to find definitely one starter who going into spring, they unquestionably will be better for them, a lot better for them than Jordan Montgomery was last year. That's a really narrow pool to fish in, a really shallow pool, I guess, to fish in, right? And so that is that is the challenge of navigating that market. Interesting. So you brought up Yamamoto. I've seen his, I, I just, I'm still kind of surprised this name continues to be thrown out uh, and linked to the Cardinals, just especially when you start seeing $200 million plus potentially plus a posting fee. I understand his talents there, but it just doesn't feel like a very Cardinal move. But then there are those links between his agent, the Cardinals investment over in Japan that mm-hmm. it just continues to come up. Do you think there's any chance that actually really happens? Or do you think at the end of the day, he's destined for a coastal city? So, yeah, the, the thing that I, the piece of this that I don't know is how he feels about markets, right? Because what we have seen mm. often from the sort of like A tier, and, and it's it's less true of the top level Korean free agents, but it has been historically very true of the top tier Japanese free agents, mm. is that they do prefer coastal markets. It's New York, it's LA, it's occasionally Seattle. This is This is, you know, historically where those players want to go, whether that's the West coast is a little bit easier for travel. You know, these are markets that, that can maybe sell, you know, a, a media landscape that, that St. Louis doesn't have to offer or a lifestyle, right. That, that some of these guys want to pursue. And that's, you know, that's just like living in New York and living in St. Louis, not the same thing. Uh, and yeah. if that's the experience that somebody wants, then they, there's really not a lot the Cardinals can do right. In, in, in that context. But what I don't know is whether he's a guy who wants to do that. I have no idea. I, I have really no way of knowing that. What I know is that number one, you know, you mentioned the ties 
Uh, Matt Slater, who is prominent in the Cardinals front office, has a relationship and development with Oryx, where Yamamoto played, has known him for a long time, has been pumping his tires for a long time. I know, I know that Yamamoto has really strong backers inside the Cardinals front office. I know there are people in that office that are screaming for him to be their guy. So mm -hmm. there will be a push there. The other thing that I know, you mentioned the agent, Joel Wolf, who is Yamamoto's American agent, is also Nolan Arenado's agent and is also Giancarlo Stanton's agent. And the reason that that is hmm. important is because when the Stanton thing happened in 2017, when, you know, when, when the Cardinals reached a deal and then Stanton said no, there was this meeting where Mosellock and Phil DeWitt flew uh, out to the West Coast and met with Stanton in the LA area and had a long conversation with him. And that was all at the behest of Joe Wolf, who thought that the Cardinals were a really good destination for him. Hmm. And the agent was selling St. Louis almost as much as the Cardinals were, right? He was pretty involved wow. in that conversation as well. And so, you know, when it came to a point where Arenado, for example, wanted out of Colorado, what, however he feels about LA, when Nolan was engineering his way out of Colorado, it was not ever get me out. Where can I go? It was get me to St. Louis, right? That was specific. Mm -hmm. That was like a years long conversation between him and Yadier Molina and his agent. Like there were a lot of things that were happening behind the scenes for a long period of time uh, before Nolan came to St. Louis. And so all of that is to say that this is an agent that has respect for this front office uh, that gets along well, that can do business with the Cardinals. And so there is a benefit to that, right? Like there definitely is a benefit to, to, to having an agent who has not only sold St. Louis in the past, but has also sold it to people like Stanton, Stanton one in mm. New York. He just did. That's just, that's just the way that it was. Right. Uh, but he's been through this a little bit before. So to the extent, and look, he's going to get his guy the most money. That's how that goes. But yeah. to the extent that that conversation can happen, there, there are good relationships that make that make sense to me. The other thing mm. that I'd be very curious about is how they value, like the dollar value they put on what it's going to cost them to sign a qualified pitcher, i.e. Gray or Noel, like guys who got QOs yeah. versus the posting fee. I, I, My guess would be just knowing the value of draft picks roughly that the posting fee is way more uh, in terms mm -hmm. of what they're going to have to pay, just given the percentage. I, I think, you know, who knows what the deal is going to be, but I think the expectation is that it's going to be in the tens of millions in a posting fee, probably that's going to end up getting paid to Oryx. Whereas, you know, the value of the pick, the Cardinals would lose their second highest pick, even if that's, let's call it the 40th pick maybe-ish in the draft next year. That probably is less than less than $5 million, something close to that, right? And so it, hmm. it's the valuation there is is pretty different. Interesting. That's super helpful context to the Yamamoto conversation. I I'm gonna I didn't plan on asking this, but it kind of came up as you're in my brain as you're uh, talking through the Giancarlo Stanton deal. So you you see the Cardinals pull pull off. They they at least came to an agreement on a Giancarlo Stanton deal to bring yeah. him in. They sent an offer to David Price and were outbid at the last minute. They've tried to sign Jason Hayward to a deal larger than the Cubs gave him. What's changed between the late 2010s when they made some bigger gambles like that and it just didn't work out? And now when we have a lot of people questioning if they'll even go after Enola or Snell and make the kind of offer needed, like, has there been a shift in the front office's views on those contracts? And, and they looked at how they turned out for those teams. Like, we're really glad we didn't do it. Or it, are they still willing to, they just haven't found the right fit since then. The kind of, I don't know if you can parse that out a little bit. Yeah, so I think there are there are two parts of this that are relevant, right? Number one is I don't know if they have changed as much as the market has changed. I think there are more mm -hmm. teams, more teams now are willing to go there. 
Uh, and so it's harder, like, like, you know, San Diego was not going there, for instance, maybe seven or eight years True. ago. That, that just didn't exist, right? Uh, yeah. So maybe there are more teams now that are willing to go there. But the other thing, too, and some of this, and, and this is part of why I wonder about this offseason a lot. Because they haven't, because they didn't do all that stuff, and yet have had rel- quibble, have had relative success and have certainly had good financial success, you wonder mm-hmm. if the lesson that ownership took away from that was <laughs> we didn't do it, it didn't happen, and we made out okay. So mm-hmm. what's the reason to do it, right? You wonder if, if that's the way that it gets looked at. Now, you know, I... I do not. I, I I am not in the group of people who believes that Bill DeWitt is content to just like turn the money over and doesn't care about winning. But I do think that there is balance, right? I, I do think that there is in his mind a a balance between it would be great to win. I don't know how many dollars worth of great to win it is, and I don't know where that tips. And frankly, I don't know that he knows, right? And and maybe that slides year to year. And maybe this year of all years, after what was a really embarrassing season. Uh, maybe that balance is further toward it's time to win. I, we're going to find out. Like, we're we're going to yeah. find out over the winter what that looks like. Interesting. Well, one more free agent related question for you. Sonny Gray, I've seen you write about him. I mean, he just consistently gets linked to the Cardinals here. Obviously, there's the Nashville ties. There's the budgeting ties where it kind of fits within potentially with the Cardinals you would think they'd want to spend. What do you think about Sonny Gray's market and if St. Louis is where he'll end up being? I, I was interested in the Atlanta conversation, but Charlie Morton's mm-hmm. option being picked up, it feels like that's maybe less likely. I don't know any thoughts you have about that. It does. I, I have seen folks cover the Braves uh, still seem to think that they are probably going to be in the market for at least one more starter. So maybe, you know, maybe he's in play for them as well. Yeah, I mean, look, the Cardinals, it, it really hasn't been a secret. Their interest in Sonny Gray it ha- has gone back a little bit. You know, a guy who has pitched in the NL Central, uh, a guy who does seemingly fit, you know, whatever the budgetary situation is. He's going to be probably more of a three or four year guy versus a seven or eight year guy. And so that's yeah. going to be a little bit of an easier thing. For them to swallow and and also i think that i i think that they think gray is a guy who will not want this to drag out right because mm-hmm. there is a risk that the top of the free of, of of the pitching market gets a little bit frozen if like for example jordan montgomery is boris guy right if, if mm-hmm. these guys because because scott has a pretty good history of kind of stretching out these negotiations yeah. if that happens and it's getting close to Chris, like what the Cardinals can't do is try to wait out the top of the market and then get caught holding the bag. And so mm. I think that almost n- not more than anything else, but a part of their interest in Sonny Gray is I think they view him as a guy who is willing to jump the line and they mm. can get settled and they can at least put a sign that says, all right, this is done, right? Like, yeah, they got a guy. And you know, if they go, if they go in the next season and Sonny Gray is starting opening day for them, that's probably a bad offseason. Mm-hmm. But if they sign Sonny Gray, they at least know that's a guy they can lean on next year who they can count on right. to give them 170 innings or give them 32 starts, however you want to look at it. Yeah. He can be he they can rely, you know, pitchers get hurt. But that aside, he's a guy who can do that. And so that that certainty, I think, has a lot of appeal to them. Mm. Well, turning the conversation to the trade market a little bit, I, you mentioned it a little bit off the top. How likely do you think it is that the Cardinals turn their attention there for one of their starters it, it, now that it's maybe two or three? Who knows? Um, and then what are some names that you would think 
are likely? Obviously, there's a ton of names that get thrown out there, but what are some of the ones that you would think, keep an eye on that name for the Cardinals? Yeah, I, I think the obvious ones are the ones that stand out to me, right? Dylan Cease jumps yeah. out. Tyler Glass now stand, you know, j- jumps out to me. Those are guys that would make some sense. They, especially, you know, when we talk about like two and a half starters, for instance, if they were to sign Gray and trade for Glass now, and then sign. I, I keep saying Kyle Gibson because he's from here. He's not. Mm-hmm. I think his wife is from here, but he's here in the winter. He lives in St. Louis in the winter time. So, a mm-hmm. Kyle Gibson or a Kyle Gibson equivalent, right? If those are the three guys they come away with, I think that's okay. I think that's like a like a like a like a B kind of winner because mm-hmm. you know if you trade for Tyler Glass now, you're doing it with the assumption that you're going to get 120 innings and not 170. Yeah, uh, which is which is okay if you you know. If you trust Zach Thompson, you think that you know maybe you can get some innings from Graceffo. That's that's okay. That to me that's a that's a passable winner, if not like a home run of a winner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I know Derek has reported on Logan Gilbert and their interest in him for a long time, which I have no doubt that they are interested. I struggle to see the fit just because I'm not entirely sure what Seattle. I, it's hard for me to see a trade fit with Seattle because, and and, and this is sort of a part of the trade conversation. The really obvious place that the Cardinals have to trade from is the group of infielders uh, and also sort of the like four a outfielders. Right. And Mm. so, you know, you're talking about one of Gorman, Edmund Donovan, you're talking about, you know, Gomez and Yepes, who don't really have a lot of value, who are like on the borderline of being non-tendered. You're talking about Tyler O'Neill at whatever his value is now. You're talking about Dylan Carlson at whatever his value is now. It's really hard for me to make a Logan Gilbert package out of the pieces that the Cardinals are willing to trade. That's really hard for me to do, unless it starts with like Gorman and Graceffo and then go from there. Um, and that's 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 a big pill. That's a really big pill for them to swallow, and I'm not I'm not entirely confident that they're that they would be willing to do that. And so that that to me is just like I, I their interest I totally get the package I have a hard time figuring out. Yeah, I'd like to um sp- you brought up there two names, so I'm glad you did Dylan Cease and Tyler Glass now specifically. How would you feel out potentially what those markets could look like for them? I'm um, November fourth, you tweeted out, and I know it's probably a little ton in cheek. White Sox light in infielder, heavy a Dylan Cease. Like, do you? I've seen Tommy Edmond, but for me, I mean, I know he's got a little bit of control, but the White Sox that they're trading Cease, that's kind of signaling rebuild. So is Tommy yeah. Edmond really the guy? Is it more Brendan Donovan, Tink Hens, Nolan Gorman? Is that the kind of thing they're looking for? Is it a combination of major league talent and um, prospects? And then for the uh, the Rays, like Glass now obviously has the talent of one of the best starting pitchers in all of baseball, but has that $25 million a year tag in the lack of innings. So like, what is a realistic market for either of those guys? Yeah. In terms of C's, I think you're right about the White Sox and kind of where they are in their window. Um, the question with the White Sox is always the involvement of ownership mm-hmm. and, and how much, like if, if, if the White Sox reach a point where Jerry Reinsdorf greens, green lights trading Dylan Cease, what is he going to want back in a package? You know, and it is, is, is ownership in Chicago going to be content with, say, it's Donovan and Hentz and whatever other pitching prospect you like, and then somebody way down the line, you know, in, in terms of player development, a pure like a like a pure futures package plus Donovan who can play every day now. Yeah. Is that something that the White Sox are going to be content with? I don't know. I, I really have no idea how to gauge that. Edmund to me, you know, and I, I 
I, I, I wrote about this earlier this year. Edmund to me is a guy where if you're the Cardinals, this winter is where you have to make the call because you have one more year of control. Yeah. Well, yeah, one more year of control yeah. After, yeah, with, with Tommy Edmund. And if he's going to get an extension, fine, figure out the extension. But you have to be prepared for that to be a much bigger number than I think folks are going to be comfortable with or, you know, or, or folks are going to be surprised by it. And then the guy yeah. that, the guy that, that crops up to me as a comp is Jake Cronenworth, right? Like Jake Cronenworth hmm. got 80 million bucks from the Padres. He is a year older than Tommy Edmond. It's for a little more power, but the slug numbers are not that different. The on-base is not different. Edmund is a superior defender. You know, Cronenworth doesn't play short, doesn't play center. Uh, and if the Cardinals give Tommy Edmund 90 or 100 million bucks on an extension, that's tough. Like, I don't yeah. – but, but, but at the same time, I don't think that that's that far off. I mean, that's probably pretty close to what his yeah. market is going to be, right? Uh, and, you know – Tommy Edmund, off the top, of my, he's like a 92 OPS plus guy last year, right? Tommy yeah. Edmund is a is a somewhat below league average hitter and a really above league average defender who generates a lot of war because he racks up a ton of good defensive numbers. Hmm. That is a guy that definitely has value. But if you're the Cardinals and you are sort of you know strategically deploying the payroll, is Tommy Edmund a guy who you're going to be really excited about paying $17 million a year to for the next seven years? I don't, I don't know. That's yeah. to me, that is tough, but I think you can get that on the market. And so for me, that's why Edmund is a guy who I would be looking at as a trade candidate. I don't know that they're looking at it the same way. In fact, hmm. I get the impression that they are looking at it or at least like field bubble management is looking at it like, Tommy Edmond is probably the starting center fielder on opening day next year, which is okay. I yeah. think that that is, I think, I think that is playable if Wynn is hitting and if you are getting, you know, and if you get like next steps from Newt Barr and Walker, if those are, if those are legit middle order hitters, I think that that is okay. I think you can get, mm. I think you can get by with Edmund Wynn eight, nine, because of what they give you defensively, if you are getting bats everywhere else, you know, if, 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 if that's Walker seven or whatever, Contreras seven or whatever, whatever it looks like, I think that that's probably fine from the position player side. But if that's the case, then the question is, you know, where does Gorman fit and where does Donovan fit? And when Thomas Sejaci hits 410 in spring next year, where does he fit? Right. There are all these guys that play like three positions and that are, above average hitters that really can't all play at once and so yeah. you have like that that to me is the part that has to sort out at the same time it's really hard to trade for a number two or three starter and trade a second baseman to get them that's mm. that's tough the value is just not there right like those those things are not valued the same by teams so, yeah. you know Brent, brendan donovan around the league as good as he is is less valuable than Logan Gilbert. You could not get Logan Gilbert for Brendan Donovan straight up. And yeah. so it is hard to, to figure out what those deals look like. Hmm. Is that why maybe a Nolan Gorman, it feels like when people talk about who's untouchable, Gorman doesn't usually get thrown in there by front office, uh, at least sourced wise, which has confused me. I would have thought he'd be the guy with the power they would not want to deal. Is maybe that why they're more willing to part with him because they know he's got the value needed? Or is that maybe just they, they're not going to trade him either, most likely? I think I think with Gorman, it's more about health with him. I think, mm. however, however they want to, however they want to talk about, it, however they want to code it, 
I think there were some concerns about how he holds up over the long term uh, with his back. And I think that there are some concerns about what the grind of playing second base does to him over the long haul, right? Like yeah. the, you know, the amount of motion and, and, and the amount that they have to lean on him to play second. He this year graded out to be a perfectly good second baseman. Part of that, a large part of that is because his arm is so good that he can mm-hmm. recover from a lot of stuff, right? Like he turns a lot of double plays, uh, however kind of chunky his footwork might be, if they can position him well, he can make every throw and then some from second. And so that it helps him gray out well at second a lot, whether or not, you know, whether or not he is a 600 plate appearance guy at second base over a full season, I I'm not sure, and I'm not sure if they think so, or if, if they know so either. And the other part of it too, which I think you alluded to, is that he is the guy with value. You know, part of the reason that Gorman crops up in these is because he is the guy who teams are going to ask for, or mm. they're going to ask for Newtbar, uh, and they're not going to. That's not going to happen. So then Gorman becomes the next guy because when people look at Nolan Gorman, they see Kyle Schwarber, right? They yeah. think that he can be that guy. Uh, and he's a better defender than Schwarber has ever been in any position and probably not quite the power guy, but probably not far off. Like if Gorman mm-hmm. had stayed healthy all of last year, he probably gets close to 35 homers. I like guess, you know, that's, that's, that's a very good, useful left-handed bat. And I know, I, I know Derek has written about this. I'm sure others have as well. You get to these righty power arms in the playoffs, the wheelers of the world, the Nolas of the world, you know, uh, Max Scherzer in a past life. You need lefty sluggers to beat these guys, and Gorman has that. Like, whatever else, he's got power, and that is a threat when you get the postseason series. Yeah. So clearly the cease market, it's going to be costly. It just depends on what the White Sox would want in return. Now, a Tyler Glass now, that's not the same level of – like, well, what's the kind of packages and kind of players you're looking at? And are the Rays going to eat any money potentially on a deal like that, or are they going to want to be clearing up all $25 million? I – you know, raise eating money is not one that seems yeah. like I, that is a phrase that doesn't really come out of the mouth really naturally, right? Yeah. Well, you would think not. Uh, you know, the, Glassnell was hard for me to figure out because mm-hmm. generally when the Rays make these deals, it's not involving guys making this much money because the Rays don't have guys to make this much yeah. money, right? Like Glassnell, if they hold him, he will be the highest paid player in team history, like by a yeah. lot, you mm-hmm. know? So I, it's it's hard for me to say because I don't I don't know that there's really clear analog to a time when the Rays have had to dump a guy or chosen to dump a guy just for financial reasons. And so, you know, we'll see what it looks like. I you know, the jokes or the non-jokes are that trading pitchers with Tampa is a bad idea. Uh it hasn't really worked out for a lot of people historically, Cardinals yeah. included. Uh so, you know, maybe you're a little skeptical of that, but I you know. I don't know. Again, Glassnow was a guy, the health history gives you pause. If you're going to trade for Glassnow, for me at least, you have to do it with the assumption that you're getting 25 starts and not 35. If you're okay with that, then you're okay with it. And But but it has to be valued out accordingly. And so the question is going to be, are the Rays okay with that? Can you get to a trade package point that they are comfortable with because the guys of the Rays are going to sell him as this is the best available starter on the market with the longest pedigree, et cetera, et cetera. But he also hasn't thrown over 100 innings more than like once in his career and not yeah. for four years or whatever the hell it's been. So it's really difficult. You know, I, that that is going to be a complicated conversation. And I, I don't really have a good gauge for how the Rays are going to value that out just because this is a new this is a new spot for them. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, because I was trying to look at comps, and Blake Snell is maybe like the only guy I can think of that clearly went on to continue to have success, but he was he had so much years of control left. That's a right, a totally different package than a glass now, and not a twenty five million dollar year number. And um, even even Snell, off the top of my head, was Snell what <clears throat> Bam and Xavier Edwards? I think they got Luis Patino in that one that's too. The right, that's right. That's right. So they got right, decent because- value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Snell was the Snell was the guy who was gaming when they made the other trade that involved. Yeah, thought, yeah, 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 yeah. Got it. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, it's just it's the Rays are weird. I feel less concerned about like them dumping a Libertor asset onto the Cardinals with this. I really do think it's money driven, but yeah, it's just hard to like. How do you figure out the value? Yeah, so he's going to be fascinating to me. Yeah, and you know the like the question is going to be when they could you know when the Rays come asking and the ask is I pick your favorite pitcher at Springfield that's got one nasty pitch. Yeah. Are they going to be comfortable giving up whoever that guy is out of fear that the Rays are going to turn him into who knows what? And that's yeah. like that's not mm-hmm. a great way to do business, right? You really again mm-hmm. it's a really tough way to to ride a team, but it's it's going to be in the back of their heads. Yeah, totally makes sense. Well, I don't want to hold up too much of your time, so we got one more kind of all-encompassing question or two actually two more real quick but uh first is so you talked about Edmonds future and you talked about kind of the middle infield mix how much is like a Victor Scott and Thomas AJC actually playing into the conversation this offseason I've seen various points about whether Scott could be an immediate 2024 asset where early on he's potentially vying for center field haven't seen as much about to, to JC's timeline but does that potentially make an Edmond or Donovan more available and what do you see their timelines looking like in 2024 um, to me, so starting with Victor Scott, to me, he doesn't really impact like Edmonds so much as maybe he impacts Carlson, okay. which is to say that like, I, it, look, if Victor Scott comes in and he's gangbusters in spring training, then I guess that there is a world where maybe he is the starting center fielder. The thing I would say is it's hard for me to imagine. I have a really hard time imagining an opening day lineup that includes Victor Scott and Mason Wynn. Hmm. Right. That is that's tough because that is a lot or that it is not very much experience at two yeah. really important positions up the middle. And so if that ha- if Victor Scott is starting in center field and opening day, then it probably means Tommy Edmund is playing shortstop, hmm. uh, I, I guess, is the way to look at it. And I don't I don't expect that to be the case. I, I expect I think that the spring training that Wynn is going to have is going to be very similar to the one that Jordan Walker had last year, which is to say he's going to get there and they're going to say we want him to win this job and they're going to give him every opportunity to do it. And I expect that he will, he is a good enough defender that he has to be like a little below average as a hitter. And he's perfectly playable at shortstop. So I, 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 that's, I have every expectation that's going to happen. Now the Scott, it's, it's got a factor next year. They, they certainly hope so. And that's, it's yeah, that's very, very possible. You know, we'll see what it looks like when he gets to Memphis and we'll see what the on-base skills look like and all that, all that's going to play itself out. But I, yeah. I think that they definitely, they are hoping and they have expectations that Scott is going to contribute in 24. And I, there's no reason to believe otherwise at the moment. The reason I say that it impacts Carlson is if Victor Scott is a guy that they can plan on in center field in the long term, then I don't, then there's really not a fit for Dylan Carlson on this team at all moving forward. Like that's, that is an asset with very low value for the Cardinals. If Victor Scott is a guy who they believe uh, is a long-term answer in center, because I think if, if they have their druthers, the corners are probably locked for what does new bar have five more years of control. Mm -hmm. Uh, The corners are locked for that long, right? That that's where they're at. I think if, if, if they get all the things that they want. And so, if that's the case and Victor Scott is playing center, you know, 
Dylan Carlson is a fine fourth outfielder. That's not the way you get the most value for him. The way to me, the way you get the most value for him is you find the team that thinks they can fix him and he becomes a trade asset. So that, you know, that is how that works out. You know, so JC, he runs into kind of the same problem and not, not really a problem, but runs into the same, the same situation that we talked about with the pitching, which is they have a half dozen guys who play three infield positions and have good bat to ball skills. Yeah. He's another one of them. And maybe, and maybe has the best bat to ball of all of those guys. That's entirely mm-hmm. possible. You know, Don, Donovan's really skilled at that. So that, that's a pretty high bar, but there, there has to be some clear out there for there to be clear room for a JC to get a chance, right? Like, you know, if the Cardinals go into spring next year and you're looking at Edmund and Gorman and Donovan and Wynn are all still here, you know, Richie Palacios is not he's a fine utility player for the for the end of the bench, but he's a guy who you can have on your big league roster. So that's that's a spot, right? That takes up a yeah. spot. Uh, you know, there's all these guys that are gonna they're gonna be there. I will say, you know, there's not there really isn't anybody certainly ahead of JC at Memphis. I think you know, he's gonna start the year there and he's gonna get every opportunity to play every day and 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 fight his way into the majors. And I, you know. I would be surprised if he did not make a debut next year. But there are a lot of guys who kind of jam up that middle of the of the infield ahead of him. That's going to have to get cleared up for me before I have a better idea of how he kind of fits into their long-term plans. I think one thing that's going to be telling is the way we see him used positionally in spring because he's going to get big mm. win games. He's going to be he's going to be a camp invite. I can't imagine there's going to be a lot of innings available at short. And so if Sajasi is playing a lot of third, a lot of second, maybe even a little bit of first. If like if they try that to, to really yeah. kind of get him around, then that to me says they're looking at him as a guy who can come up and contribute faster because they're trying to find places on the field where he can fit. Like in, in a very similar way that we saw with Brendan Donovan two springs ago, right? Where we saw yeah. Donovan come and play every spot in spring. If, if Sajasi has that kind of spring, that tells me they're looking at ways to get him up. If so JC is playing second base in the sixth inning and later against the Mets eight times a week. Then that tells me they're going to kind of tap the brakes and let it kind of sort itself out. Yeah, that's great. Well, to wrap up the conversation, I wanted to see what do you think is the bare minimum the Cardinals need to do this offseason? Like this is the baseline for success. This is a C plus B minus. They can get by with it. And what do you think is like a realistic like a A plus scenario where they come into spring training and they've accomplished more than what we thought they could have done? Um, I think I think the A plus is Yamamoto. If Mm. they if they were to pull if they were to pull off if they were to pull off Yamamoto and two other, like if, if the winter was Yamamoto, Michael Walker, Kyle Gibson, that is an A plus to me because the, 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 the ceiling with Yamamoto is so high mm-hmm. uh, that it just sort of swamps whatever else you need. For me, a baseline, a, a C off season is four pitchers, two definite starters and, you know, a swing guy and a bullpen guy. That to me, that to me is a C, right? Like you need, they, you know, you need like, they need somebody to replace Chris Stratton. You know, we joke about that, but like that is kind of an important role, right? Like you need a guy who can keep a game at one run. You need a guy, you know, that like you, you got to like the Casey Lawrence, Jacob Barnes part of the bullpen. Like I can't, that can't happen, which that yeah. was innings were innings. They had to get to the end of the season, but you, that like that guy needs to be there. Chris Stratton or better that that guy needs to be there. You need that guy. You need 
somebody who you can plug in, who you can trust to start sometimes or not. Like to me, for example, you know, Nick Martinez is a guy that to me makes a lot of sense there. Seth Lugo is the guy that makes a lot of sense there. I'm sure both of those guys are going to be looking for deals that are going to gear, you know, both of those guys are going to want deals where they get to go into camp as one of the five, not fighting to be one of the five. Yeah. But if you can make that happen, then great. Um, otherwise, you know, I, I guess, I guess the thing to say is the guy that they, they, they have a C is, signing a pitcher who either starts opening day or the second day of the season. Right. Like if you go into next year and Mike and, and miles Michaelis starts opening day, because he's been here for a long time and yada, yada, fine, whatever. But you yeah. need to have, you need to have like a starter who is better than Michaelis and Matt's baseline. That's a, that's a, that's a C plus two other guys and, and another body for the bullpen. And so like, that's a high bar, but that, no doubt that it's a complicated situation. And, you know, and I, I had this conversation with, with someone a couple weeks ago, you know, where it was like, yeah, that's, that's a high bar, but this is what they did to themselves, right? Yeah. Like they allowed it to get to this point to where they do have to do that uh, for the off season to be passable. Yeah. Well, Jeff, this is a super great conversation. Thank you for enriching us with this. Um, you guys can continue to check over his work over at the Belleville News Democrat. And then obviously give him a follow on Twitter as well. There's always great stuff over there, J.M. Jones. Jeff, thank you so much for being on. Uh, we always love having you as a guest. And we hope you enjoy this coming weeks in the off season because I'm sure it's going to get a lot busier for you here soon. So thank you so much. It's non-tender season. Everybody get excited. <laughs> no, I'm happy to do it anytime. Awesome. Thank you, Jeff. And again, thanks, as Jeff. always, you can click the affiliated link below for lids if you want to get some merch over there. As always, thanks for listening, guys. Hopefully we have Sandy and Andrew back next week. See you guys next time.